Hello and welcome to this episode of As My Whimsy Takes Me. I'm Karis Ellison. And I'm Sharon Shu. Today we'll be picking up our discussion on the unpleasantness at the Bologna Club, and we will be talking about the events that happen between roughly chapter 8 through chapter 16. Just a note to our listeners that we will be giving away some plot elements that happen during the course of those chapters, but not the whodunit. So, Karis, very exciting that we are doing our second of three episodes. Yes. And I do hope we'll have enough material to (laughs) talk about. I think that we will, especially considering how convoluted the plot of this book is. Yeah. (laughs) You know, in our last episode, I felt like it took forever just to explain the premise. It is one of the more plotty mysteries, I Mm. think. So yeah, last time we left off with this visit that Whimsy pays to Sheila and George. Mm -hmm. And picking up in chapter eight, Peter tries to go to see Anne Dorland, who was Lady Dormer's companion and the, you know, the other party in this contested will. And she is conveniently not home, or at least not home to him. Um. <laughs> She's, she kind of snubs him. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, yeah. not kind of, like, absolutely, definitely. Yes. <laughs> so Peter goes instead to try to see, well, he, he succeeds in visiting her lawyer. Who also snubs him. Yes, just getting snubbed left and right. It's probably good for him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So finally, he goes to Robert Fenton, and he's just like running down the list of all interested parties. And General Fenton's manservant had told Peter about this call that he received the night before the general's body was found at the Bologna Club, where this person on the other line said, I'm an old friend of the general's. I just ran into him. He's going to be spending the night with me. Don't worry about him, etc. And... Robert Fentiman mentioned that this is a friend of the general's named Oliver, but the manservant had kind of found it a little bit suspicious because, as we've mentioned before, the the general was very, very regular in his habits, Mm -hmm. um, did not really like to veer off his routine, which, relatable. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, that, that was kind of already raising like a hmm in Peter's mind. So he's been working with Robert to try to track down this Oliver fellow. And that's kind of also how he gets um, Parker involved because he needs he's, you know, he asks for like a police tale to to hang about the places that Robert Fentiman has said. Oliver usually shows up. I don't think he's he doesn't send police. Does he not? No, he asks Parker to trace the phone call. Oh, that's what it is. But then he gets private detectives to... To hang around. To hang around. To loiter. This is what happens when like a month goes by after (laughs) I read something. (laughs) Just all the details fly out of my brain. (laughs) Which I don't know. Maybe that makes me like an ideal detective fiction reader. It's like half the time I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. (laughs) So this question of like, where did the general spend the night and who is Oliver takes up a big chunk of the book for a while. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And spoiler. (laughs) And spoiler. There is no Oliver. There is no Oliver. It's an enormous red herring. Which, how early do you think Peter 
Like, do you think he ever really believes that there was an Oliver? Or... I don't. I mm-hmm. think that Peter, you know, he finds evidence that the general was at the Bologna Club that night. You know, he finds some notes on blotting paper that the general was making in the library of the Bologna Club. Mm-hmm. And they kind of are obviously like him allocating amounts of money to Robert and George because like it's figures and their initials and it's quite clearly the general's handwriting Peter gets it all verified like he checks the fingerprints on it he goes to Parker and asks to have one of the uh, the police handwriting experts have a look at it and verify that it's the general's and Peter noticed at the very beginning of the investigation that something was missing from the general's outfit Mm -hmm. so i think that peter really knew from the beginning that the general had gone back to the bologna club after you know after his interview with his sister Mm -hmm. and that he never left yeah so peter has been confident all along that there was foul play and i think that he had a really good idea of who was responsible as well Mm-hmm. It's interesting because it picks up a bit on that theme from a natural death, right? Where Peter says, sometimes you have to wait for a suspect to, to try to start covering their own tracks and hope that they mess up. And I think that this is a, he's kind of doing a similar thing here where he knows something's fishy. He suspects Robert has something to do with it. But this time, instead of like stirring up the ant's nest, he just kind of feeds out enough rope, I think. Yeah. So it's, I mean, from a character development standpoint, it's interesting to think that he is becoming a little more cautious, maybe after Mm. being like indirectly responsible for Mm. uh, some additional loss of life in his previous case. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also a case of him looking at Robert Fintiman and and understanding what the type of person that he is. Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit last time about how Robert doesn't have imagination. He has some creativity because he comes up with all these yarns. Mm-hmm. Um, but he kind of lacks the imagination to anticipate just where all of his fabulous stories end up. Yeah. And to make them cohesive. And like they they just you know, it's like that class of thing of you tell one lie and then there's more lies and then they just start falling all over the place. Yeah, it is like actually a little bit comical once mm-hmm. Peter starts calling his bluff, right? Like right. Robert's like, oh, yes, I just ran into Oliver at, you know, <laughs> Gaddy's where, where I've seen him a bunch before. And so then Peter's very cheerfully like, oh, yes, let's just go, you know, canvas the waiters and <laughs> yeah. like wait for him there. And then, oh, darn, he's not here. Oh, I, you know, I saw him get on a train and I tried to rush after him, but he eluded <laughs> me like. <laughs> yeah. So I don't feel too bad for Robert that, like, Peter ends up leading him on a merry chase across Right. America. No, Robert really kind of has it coming. Mm-hmm. He's being, mm-hmm. he's being ridiculous. Yeah. And it's a little bit interesting that we don't see them, but we know that Peter is using, like, some private detectives. Since he doesn't exactly have Baker Street irregulars, he has, at, like, a detective who is helping Robert stake out the train station for... Mr. Oliver, and then another sleuth who is watching Robert in addition mm-hmm. <laughs> in addition to the other sleuth. Yeah. So it's just like a, a nesting 
a nesting, nesting doll. Of- <laughs> uh, yeah, a nesting doll of detectives. Yeah, and it's like not really made clear to us as readers initially, right? That mm-hmm. that Peter never has never believed in this yarn, and that he's set like multiple detective matryoshkas into <laughs> right into play. Which, like, how do you think that plays into what we've been saying about how you know Sayers always lays everything out for us? Because I, I think in the case itself, like we'll we'll talk about this shortly, and we mentioned it last time. Like all the clues that point Peter to the fact that the the general, you know, never left the Bologna Club that night are made available to us. But I think there's a way in which the the narrative kind of occludes that Peter is suspicious of like the Oliver subplot. Yeah. And I do, I think the way that Sayers kind of conceals from us what Peter is doing, because like we don't... She kind of skips over. It's just like, and Peter gave the sleuth certain other instructions, mm-hmm. you know? So, like, we aren't told right away that there is another sleuth watching Robert. There's the decoy sleuth that Robert knows about, and then there's another sleuth. And we aren't told mm-hmm. about that second sleuth right away. And then there's another bit where one of the hired sleuths goes off to France in pursuit of Oliver. It's like, oh, it turns out that he's real after all, and I am chasing him, and... I've taken Robert with me and you know and like they go on this goose chase Mm -hmm. before coming back and that uh, you know like again a spoiler but we find out that that was all manufactured by Peter Mm -hmm. and we don't find that out until you know everyone else is finding it out in the book as well exactly but I do think that what makes those instances different from Sayers following the rules of showing us all the clues is that those are just Peter getting confirmation. He mm-hmm. has all the evidence he already knows, but he's kind of doing these things to to get proof. Yeah. So Sayers isn't concealing the clues we need from us. Like, even when Sayers describes the, the bay in the library where Peter mm-hmm. found the piece of paper, he's just like, oh, this was where the general was. She mentions there that there is the complete works of Charles Dickens on mm-hmm. the shelf right there, which, like, obviously is where the name Oliver came from. Right. It even later on when Peter is reconstructing part of the scene to, to Murbles and Parker, the narrative then explicitly tells us the way that the, the lamp is situated. Um, it throws light onto the gilt lettering on the volume of Oliver Twist. So yeah. it's like the name kind of lodged itself subconsciously. Yeah. So like the first time that she describes the library, she doesn't say Oliver Twist, but she tells us mm-hmm. that the Charles Dickens books are there. Yes. So as long as you're familiar with Mr. Dickens's uh, <laughs> massive canon, <laughs> massive body of work. But yeah. So I think, like, the clues for us to figure out what was going on are there. Mm -hmm. And so it feels a little bit like cheating for all of this to be going on with the sleuths and for us not to be told. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't break the rules. Yeah, I think I agree. And you and I were kind of noting before we started recording that in a way, this mystery, it's its really sort of broken up in two parts, right? And I think there's a way in which, from like a compositional point of view, it's really masterly that it's almost exactly halfway through that Sayers drops the first 
major revelation, which is that General Fentiman was, we, we still don't quite get when he died, like a time of death, but that the body was moved mm-hmm. and arranged in the armchair so that it would not be found until a little bit later. And, you know, we get the revelation that Robert was the one who did this because he found the general dead the night before and was concerned or not concerned, but, you know, sort of once again, lacking in imagination (laughs) reacted immediately to the situation of like, Oh no, you know, I know lady Dormer is going to be dead any second now. And why should this random girl get the money that, you know, I know my grandfather would have wanted us to have. Let me just try to hide this for as long as I can. Right. Mm -hmm. So he stuffs the general's body into a telephone booth. He puts up a placard that says that the booth is out of order. And then the next morning during the two minute silence, when everybody else in the club is observing armistice day, he moves the body into the general's you know, regular and favorite chair. Mm-hmm. So that all comes out fairly early, I think, in the, in the text for like such a major revelation. But it also sets us up for kind of like the back end of the mystery because Peter's gone ahead with exhuming the body, you know, kind of under the pretense of like, oh, if we know what was in the general's stomach, then, you know, maybe we'd have a sense of how soon after he ate dinner, he passed on and so forth. But really... Peter's looking for foul play and he finds it. Mm-hmm. He does. It's easy to be reading the book and think that the whole mystery is who moved the body. Mm-hmm. Because there isn't a hint really in the beginning that there was foul play. Right. It comes, I think, as a surprise probably to most readers. Like you go through all this, <laughs> you get, you're just like, and it was Robert. And then the exhumation results come back. And it's like, and by the way, the general was poisoned. It's like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> huh? What? <laughs> I even, I love how um, there's this bit when Parker goes to talk to Pemberthy about the fact that they'd kind of overlooked the foul play. And he was like, oh, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to like make a fuss about the certificate of death you issued because I understand that a death resulting from an overdose of digitalin would look very much like a death from heart failure. And then there's this really funny bit where um, Pemberthy says it would be a death from heart failure. And the narrative (laughs) notes, doctors are wary of explaining that heart failure is not a specific disease like mumps or housemaid's knee. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's also a little bit before that when Peter is explaining the move the body plot to Marbles. Mm -hmm. Robert is is still being led a merry chase. (laughs) And... Peter is revealing everything to Merbles and Parker and right. And Peter, so Peter is talking about how the loose knee joint was suspicious, but no one kind of made a fuss about it at the time. Mm -hmm. And he says, it was obvious from the start that somebody had been tampering with the general. Pinberthy knew that too, of course, only being a doctor, he wasn't going to make an indiscreet uproar if he could avoid it. It doesn't pay, you know. (laughs) <laughs> which it seems like a pretty direct callback to a natural death and to Dr. Carr Yeah, and the fuss. Yeah, that was made. There are so many, I don't know if I ever really realized this before, which seems like maybe a lack of reading comprehension on my part, but there's so many ways that these two books really rhyme, I think. Yeah. Um, it's almost like Sayers wrote this book as a response to herself. Yeah. 
or like I wonder if you know partially also a response to to critics like like Pemberthy's you know sort of exasperated well it would be heart failure <laughs> um, like if people were critiquing sort of the you know that the method in unnatural death <laughs> yeah there's another line from this bit where peter is leading Merbles and parker all over the bologna club they're talking about like how quickly the body could have been moved from the telephone cabinet to the chair mm-hmm. and it says that finally placing the light spare form of the unwilling mr Merbles in the telephone <laughs> cabinet Parker had demonstrated that a fairly tall and strong man could have extricated the body from the box, carried it into the smoking room, and arranged it in the armchair by the fire, all in something under four minutes. <laughs> I just love the idea of Mr. Purples letting this happen and hating it. <laughs> just being carried around by Parker. Yeah. Speak- like Speaking of... Of Sarah's efficiency of language, right? The lights bear form of the unwilling Mr. Murbles. Like, talk about understatement. <laughs> and I think once again, we we sort of get that um, that generational difference, right? Mm-hmm. Where Murbles is so horrified that Robert, you know, took advantage of Armistice Day. Like right. Mr. Murbles was horror struck. God bless my soul. How abominable. How how blasphemous. I cannot find the words. This is the most disgraceful thing I ever heard of. To be engaged in perpetrating a fraud, an irreverent crime. And and Parker just like sort of very dryly is like, well, you know, half a million is a good bit of money. (laughs) (laughs) And Murbles is going on and on about, you know, the desecration. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Which, speaking of Armistice Day, I don't think we've directly mentioned yet that the thing that was missing from the general's outfit. Yes. That gave Peter the clue. He was just like, this is how I know that the general was not anywhere on the street or in public Mm -hmm. the morning of Armistice Day because the general did not have a poppy. A man like the general would never have gone anywhere on Armistice Day without wearing his poppy. Which for our non-British or Commonwealth listeners is, is a very, it's like the remembrance token that people wear on and I think around Armistice Day as well, right? And I think it gives us a slight indication kind of into Robert's character as well, right? Mm-hmm. That he would forget such a crucial detail. We were talking last time about how he came through the war relatively unscathed in comparison to his brother or to Peter. So, it, you know, it, it's it's a nice little character note that he he would, you know, he's like the most likely suspect to forget the remembrance day accessory yeah and there's you know it's interesting like when they do confront robert about all of it and and like Murbles has is kind of like how dare you <laughs> robert's just like what it doesn't make a difference to my friends who died like they aren't mm-hmm. in a position to benefit from me doing like this isn't terminology that he would use that it would occur right. to robert to use but he's like they're not going to benefit from me doing performative grief mm-hmm and I do think it's worth noting that the reason Robert kind of came through the war without without psychological damage is just all about his personal mental makeup, right? Because, like, there's mm-hmm. a... I thought I put a sticky note in it, but of course now I can't find it. Oh, yeah, here it is, where George is talking about Robert and talking about how he was in a, a ghastly hole at Clarency. And the ground is rotten with corpses and there were big rats. So it's just like, it's not that Robert was not in horrible places or seeing terrible things. It's just that it did not 
affect him the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, like his mind is just built differently. Mm-hmm. And that's also part of why he can, you know, he almost like once once he's found out, he's sort of like, oh, fiddlesticks, you know, um, yeah. <laughs> like doesn't really even, I think, demonstrate that he understands why Marbles is so horrified. Like he's just like, yeah. oh, it was good lark until I couldn't get away with it anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's just like you've been caught out committing fraud <laughs> involving the corpse of your grandfather. Yeah. I mean, and it's, uh, wow, okay. But, and it's interesting, though, because, like, Robert isn't shown as someone who is, like, totally without sensibility, right? Mm-hmm. It's just yeah. that his his sensibilities are different. You know, like, he has a whole thing with Peter where he's talking about George and Sheila, and he's just like, women deserve to be treated politely, no matter how long you've been married. And so, like, he has, mm-hmm. he has sensibilities and he kind of has standards, but they're, they're very different from Merbles and they're very different from, say, George or even Parker. Yeah. And to be fair to Robert as well, when it, when it comes out, you know, when Peter reveals that Dr. Lubbock had um, ruled that the general was given a dose of poison and that's what caused the death, like Robert mm-hmm. is horrified and I think very um, regretful or, you know, he says, I wouldn't have touched the body for 10, 20 millions if I had known I had the faintest mm-hmm. idea. Yeah. Like, obviously, he wouldn't have done anything to hasten his grandfather's death. And if he had suspected mm-hmm. that someone else had, he would never have interfered with the investigation. Exactly. You know, like, as far as he was concerned, it was just like, why not mm-hmm. move a dead body around so that the people who that I that I think deserve this money get it? Like, it's not hurting anyone that much. Right, right. Like, Miss Dorland will still be provided for. Mm-hmm. I will be provided for. George and Sheila will be provided for. Like, what's the harm in yeah. kind of telling, I mean, like, the equivalent of to him of telling a little white lie, right? Yeah. And it's so funny because when Parker, when Peter does this big reveal, it, Mr. Merble sat petrified. Fentiman's like, oh, my God, you know, <laughs> good Lord. And then. Parker, who had hitherto preserved the detached expression of a friendly spectator, now beamed. Damn good, old man, he cried and smote Peter <laughs> on the back. Professional enthusiasm overcame him. It's a real case. Um, and then, thank you, Charles, said Whimsy dryly. I'm glad somebody appreciates me. <laughs> it's just so funny. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Parker doesn't have a huge role, you know, in this investigation up to this point. He does not. But... It, it is delightful to have him kind of show up and, and be in the background. And it's also kind of nice to just kind of like get to see Parker at work. Mm-hmm. You know, like in the beginning, Peter asks him to trace the phone call. He stops by and asks him to be like, hey, could your handwriting person have a look at this? Parker is, is busy because he's got some big case underway. It's just like, oh, it's nice to see you doing something other than like run around after Peter. Doing all the hard work for for Peter. <laughs> right. It's just like Parker does have like a developed life and job and career like outside of. He's not just Peter's sidekick. And I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He really starts to fade out a bit, too, as the series goes on. Um, yeah. I mean, as as the sidekick, he he's still part of it in a very important other role which we will get Mm -hmm. to eventually yes but it is it is interesting that you know you kind of 
I, you know, I don't even know if it's that Sayers got tired of that sidekick formula or once Harriet's introduced, you know, there's sort of these alternatives, but I think it's interesting that she's like already kind of playing with that form of, okay, let's try having my detective be on his own for a bit or working with other people, you know, like working with Merbles here, or we're going to meet Marjorie Phelps, I think in this part as well. So just like putting Peter with different people. Yeah. I wonder if some of that is, you know, Sayers acknowledging the fact that if you have a sidekick character, it doesn't ever serve them well, Mm -hmm. you know, at some point. So like, say you're treating your sidekick character as like a fully realized person (laughs) being a sidekick at some point is going to be holding them back right or they're you know they're going to outgrow it and given the fact that she wrote peter and parker from the beginning as like a mutual friendship Mm -hmm. it's not like a poirot hastings situation you know or a, a holmes watson situation yeah i mean the narrative here even at one point says that Parker was possibly Lord Peter's most intimate, in some ways his only intimate friend. And like, though they couldn't have been more different, Parker was the one person who was never irritated by Whimsy's mannerisms, (laughs) which, good for you, Charles Parker. (laughs) And Whimsy repaid him with a genuine affection foreign to his usually detached nature. Yeah. Yeah, that's really something. Mm. Hmm. Okay, so... Yes. We find out who moved the body. We find out that the general was given a large dose of poison. Mm -hmm. Which we're saying poison because that's how it functions, but it's actually an overdose of a heart medication. Right. Right. Yes. My apologies to Dr. Pemberthy. (laughs) (laughs) So then we're off to the races. Of course, sort of immediately Peter's working out like, okay, who would have had access who would have benefited. And he's very suspicious of Miss Dorland and why, you know, why she's sort of um, sequestered herself away and, mm-hmm. and what she might know. And Yeah, well, and there's also the fact that Peter, once it's known to her side of things, you know, like her lawyer is informed and her lawyer is present at the exhumation, you know, so like she knows the exhumation is happening mm-hmm. and it's when the exhumation is planned and Peter has informed people, that's when, for the first time, she offers to compromise and, like, do a settlement. Right. And at that point... Peter's like, no, it's too late. Yeah, like, at that point, Peter tells Mirbles, he's just like, if you agree to handle a settlement, then you're (laughs) going to be party to fraud. Mm -hmm. So then he's like, okay, what does she know Yeah, that makes her not want me to find whatever information this body is going to give me? Mm -hmm. And then there's a whole bit where they're trying to figure out if she could have possibly slipped something to the general because they know that he had a little bit of like a fit while he was at Lady Dormer's house, probably from the shock of seeing her and that they, they know that the general was given brandy. At Lady Dormer, so they're they're trying to work out like if Anne Dorland could have slipped the digitalin in at any point. Yeah, that does seem like the obvious thing. Mm-hmm. But you know, I don't know. I kind of get the sense that Peter, even before meeting Anne Dorland, because he doesn't meet her for like a very long time into the book, mm-hmm. he doesn't meet her face to face at all. But I definitely get the impression that he thinks that there's something else going on. Yeah. We haven't talked about Marjorie. Let's talk about Marjorie a bit before we get into kind of our first interaction with 
and Dorland's social circle. Yes, let's do. Tell our listeners about Marjorie Karis. Uh, Marjorie Phelps is, she, she makes pottery figures. She's an artist. And Peter goes to call on her. And it, it's obvious that they're good friends. He shows up at her studio and they have this lovely scene together where it's just like, oh, this is just nice and comfortable. Mm-hmm. And he goes to her to ask her what she knows about Anne Dorland because Anne Dorland has been kind of trying to paint, uh, trying to be involved in kind of the studio scene, mm-hmm. trying to be a part of the art world and not really succeeding. And so we haven't met Anne Dorland and really most of what we know about her comes from Marjorie. She gives a very good description where she's like and like a very honest kind of physical description where she's just mm-hmm. like it's she, an artist description. Yeah, it's like she has these features. These are she has good features, but the overall effect is is not particularly attractive. Mm-hmm. Peter says she's a painter, isn't she? Marjorie goes, mm, "Well, she paints." <laughs> the um what was that meme that went around a few years ago or or maybe it was like a you know like a article on Jezebel or something where it was like you know what what do you dear Miss Manners what do I do if uh if my friend is engaged to someone I don't like and it's like just just respond in facts (laughs) you're engaged you're getting married (laughs) this feels very much like yeah "Mm, she paints (laughs) yeah like Marjorie kind of gives us this picture of someone who is trying to fit into a lifestyle that doesn't suit her mm-hmm. it reminds me a little bit of when in clouds of witness when we talked about mary whimsy peter's sister and how she tried on different personas yeah um like Anne dorland is she's an orphan who who was in extreme poverty before lady dormer took her on so so she kind of went from one extreme to another mm-hmm. and you kind of get this picture of someone who's just been like, I don't know what to do with myself. I'm going to try this. This this mm-hmm. isn't working. I'm going to try this. Right. And Marjorie, I think also, she puts her finger on, I think, aspects of Anne's personality that are quite revealing for Peter. Mm-hmm. She says, I think Anne has a sort of fixed idea that she could never possibly attract anyone. So she's either sentimental and tiresome or rude and snubbing. And our crowd does hate sentimentality and simply can't bear to be snubbed. Mm-hmm. Anne's rather pathetic, really. You know, like Marjorie sort of implies that she'd started on the painting and the art because she'd fallen for someone who was part of the art scene. And it, so it's sort of this like, you know, and then and then she's like, I think she's gone off art a bit. Now she seems to be going for social service or sick nursing or something of the kind. It's like, you know, Marjorie sort of twigged onto the fact that that Anne attaches herself to these various populations or these various ways of being that have much more to do with the crowd that she wants to be a part of than mm-hmm. than her own like native interests. Right. Well, and I think, you know, it's that kind of classic thing of, oh, yes, I'm definitely interested in this, you know, when really you're just interested in, in a person. Mm-hmm. You're just like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm so interested in this thing. <laughs> very interesting so interesting never never been more fascinated by anything mm-hmm. so that being the portrait that peter has of Anne dorland um, marjorie invites him to go with her to 
a a party at the Rushworths, and the Rushworths are kind of part of the artistic circle. Mm-hmm. And that like that party is is interesting. It's in chapter sixteen, right? Like the last chapter we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And the party is to hear a talk mm-hmm. on a glands clinic that is meant to be starting. Mm-hmm. Well, we find out quite a bit of information mm-hmm. at this party, right? Peter shows up and finds out that it's it's actually Dr. Pemberthy speaking. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of this whole bit where, you, you know, earlier on, Marjorie had mentioned that the, the Rushworth daughter, Naomi, had, you know, just gotten engaged to this doctor who's giving this talk. And then, yeah, and then you find out, oh, it's Pemberthy and that the engagement was was like a little bit sudden or unexpected, unanticipated. And like this party is like a, a crowd of artistic people crossed over with a, a crowd of wealthy people mm-hmm. kind of to drum up support for this glands clinic, which is Pemberthy's pet project, which is to make people good with glands. <laughs> like if you fix if you fix people's glands, then their all of their personality problems will go away. Mm-hmm. It really reminds me of that early conversation with Julian Freak, mm-hmm. right? Like kind of from the other angle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like at one point, Pemberthy is sort of like antagonizing a, a clergyman of like. You know, I hope you're not too, I hope the church isn't too against what I'm doing. And Yeah. And like the father says, if you can cure sin with an injection, I shall only, I shall be only too pleased. Only be sure you don't pump in something worse in the process. And it just, mm-hmm. it just really reminded me of that, like of Julian Freak's proposal that the knowledge of good and evil could be removed from the, like that it's just this like physical phenomenon. Yeah. I'd love to know, like if any of our listeners know about this attitude towards the 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 chemical aspect of personality if that phrase makes any sense Mm -hmm. at all but like how your brain chemistry influences things and i kind of feel like this was early days of people realizing that your hormones affect your mood and you know like your your health kind of changes your your mental attitudes Mm mm-hmm and if anyone has particular knowledge about what the the general thought about that was in the 20s, I would be interested to know because it does seem to be something that's popping up in the background of Sayers a good bit. And so... Right. Yeah. Was this considered like quack medicine or was it... Yeah. Or was this like the up and coming mainstream mm-hmm. thing? Or was yeah. this like the, the equivalent of, of, I don't know, like Gwyneth Paltrow's goop stuff? <laughs> <laughs> yes steaming your bits <laughs> please which listeners please do not we do not endorse <laughs> not at all no that's, that's, a, that's a good way to make terrible things happen i might edit this out <laughs> it would be it'd be interesting to know kind of whether this was like considered fringe science or, or becoming more mainstream or yeah, cutting edge or, or so forth. I think it would give us more of a sense of mm-hmm. like how we're meant to view these characters, maybe. Yeah, and like I, uh, my like my awareness of it only comes from seeing it here in Sayers. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm not sure where to look to find out a little bit more about like the social context. Yeah. So, I if anyone has information, I would be very interested. <laughs> yeah, I mean certainly, like. 
psychoanalysis was a huge thing, but mm-hmm. that that seems to be a very separate conversation or like a separate strand of of the medical world. Yeah, yeah, yeah I don't know either. A couple interesting things about this party that I wanted to flag: that first of all, Miss Dorland does not show up, mm-hmm. even though everyone thought she was very keen on on glands and things, and it sort of implied that you know maybe she wasn't feeling up to to being in public because the other thing that happens is we find out that the newspapers have kind of gotten a hold of this story and good old Sal Hardy or Mm. sometimes referred to as Sally Hardy, but Salcom Hardy, who is like a gossip rag newspaper man Mm -hmm. also turns up and he'd, he'd like briefly shown up in unnatural death. I think, um, reporting on like the story of the Vera Finlater disappearance. But I find it interesting that you're really, I, I feel like in the middle set of books, you're, you really get a sense of like the press or the newspapers or reporters as like being potential hindrances to investigation. Mm-hmm. It feels like they're always kind of endangering Peter's investigation by they want to release clues or, you know, they're, like Sal Hardy is always coming to him being like, well, what do you think happened? <laughs> um, and Peter's like, I can't tell you. <laughs> but it's, I think it's interesting to sort of see like a wider awareness of, of the press or of like the changes in journalism, you know, the, the sort of rise of more like gossipy tabloids start to show up in these books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wasn't really going anywhere with that. Just yeah. wanted to to flag it especially before we get to strong poison yeah definitely and then you know marjorie kind of comes back to peter after circulating at the party and she's been gathering information for him as well Mm -hmm. and she kind of brings the information that the artist's side of things are just like oh well Anne didn't come because she's upset about a failed romance Mm -hmm. you know and it kind of seems like that and Dorland was, Marjorie uses the phrase gathered up by someone named Ledbury, who's an artist. And that seems to be when she tried really hard to be good at painting, but just mm-hmm. wasn't. And then, you know, like he moved on because that's what he does. And that she kind of stopped painting. And then Marjorie's passing on this kind of information about like, oh, Naomi was saying things about how and Dorland tried to get together with so-and-so and it could like couldn't make it come off Mm -hmm. and then it kind of comes out that people are not feeling very loving towards Andorland because everyone's saying that she did it Mm -hmm. and peter like interestingly peter asks marjorie to be a friend to miss dorland Mm -hmm. marjorie because she's a lovely person she's like i'm not gonna spy on her she's you know because what if she'd poisoned 50 old generals (laughs) yeah Mm-hmm. he's just like if someone comes to me as a friend I'm not going to spy on them for you and he's like I don't want you to but I want you to keep mm-hmm. an open mind and tell me what you think because I don't want to make a mistake which I think is you know like that's another place where this book reminds me of a natural death mm-hmm. I've made mistakes by rushing into things and I yeah. don't want to make, make a mistake he says, and I'm prejudiced. I want Miss Dorland to be guilty. So I'm very likely to persuade myself she is when she isn't. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, so so basically he's he's just said, he's just asking Marjorie to do her best to be an impartial third party. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like he's looking for 
an opinion to balance him. Yeah. Which is so interesting because a few lines later, I mean, you know, Marjorie responds like, I'm not going to try to worm anything out of her. And then Peter says, my dear girl, you're not keeping an open mind. You think she did it. So it's interesting how he's saying, like, I need you to be objective, an objective third party, Mm -hmm. because I want her to have done it. But I also recognize that you already think she did it. And Mm -hmm. that, you know, in trying to be a good, good friend, like you're, you're telling me you're not going to dig for more information, but that's because you think you're going to find something. Mm -hmm. And then it's great because Marjorie says, Peter Whimsy, you sit there looking a perfectly well-bred imbecile. (laughs) And then in the most underhand (laughs) way, you twist people into doing things they ought to blush for. So she really, I mean, she really has Peter. Peter's number there. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to me that the books don't try to make make more of a romantic match between Peter and Marjorie. Yeah. There's definitely like a sense that they've had something. Mm-hmm. And my impression is that they've had a nice, friendly something, something. Mm-hmm. But that it didn't develop into anything serious. Yeah. And... And after this, we're going to read Strong Poison and Peter's life will take a a tremendous turn. (laughs) Yeah, well, definitely, I think when we get to that book and its developments, talk about uh, sort of, you know, earlier candidates, earlier female characters um, Mm -hmm. that show up in Peter's life and kind of, you know, maybe what that book borrows or, or rhymes with or uh, takes off from yeah yeah so we will be talking about strong poison soon but before that we will have one more episode wrapping up the unpleasantness at the Bologna club in two weeks we will talk about the whodunit we will finally meet miss dorland and we will find out more about why mr Murbles delights me so very much <laughs> so we'll see you then dear listeners in the meantime, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as at WhimsyPod. That's Whimsy, W-I-M-S-E-Y. And you can find transcripts and show notes of our episodes on our website at asmywhimsytakesme.com. Our logo is by Gabby Vicioso, and our theme music was composed and recorded by Sarah Mahalik. If you've enjoyed this episode of As My Whimsy Takes Me, we'd love for you to give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or on your podcatcher of choice. And we also hope that you'll tell all your friends who love Dorothy L. Sayers as much as we do. Join us next time for more Talking Piffle. (laughs) 